Hello, welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And uh, this is episode 162 of uh, Sitcom Geeks. And uh, we're very pleased to have a a great guest with us. So uh, please welcome to the Sitcom Geeks podcast, uh, the wonderful writer, uh, TV director, novelist. And we'll talk about all of these things and much more with uh, Lissa Evans. Hello. Nice to be here. Well, I'm actually in my room. Let's not fool anyone. But uh, yeah, very nice to be talking. And it's great. Uh, it's great to have you with us as well. So um, we, um, we we've um, I, well, I've known you for, for a, a fair old time, uh, Lisa. I probably uh, first met when you were uh, directing. Have I got news uh, for you? Oh, on, oh did we not meet in radio? Okay. All right. No, because that that's surprisingly because yeah. um, you started at the sort of BBC radio uh, department, pretty much kind of the, uh, a few years just sort of after I kind of stopped spending time there. Really, I was kind of doing uh more kind of stand-up and stuff but but we'll, we'll we'll talk about that and we'll talk about the the amazing langham street corridor of the early 1980s uh a, a bit later but um i mean first off we're sort of quite interested we always like to ask our uh writer uh guests um if what um what their kind of early comedy uh influences uh were um well i mean i've always been conscious that i I like funny things. I, I, you know, my earliest memories of reading are, are finding books that convulse me, really. Molesworth and, and the Uncle books by J.P. Martin. Um, but my first consciousness of uh, funny uh, film or TV or, or, or um, radio, I think, was Forty Towers. I mean, but, but there were shows before then, but that was the show that knocked me sideways that uh, that really stamped me as a comedy geek because I don't think there are many people who are really interested in comedy who didn't buy the 40 hour scripts, who didn't know them almost off by heart, every pause, every inflection, every syllable. You know, I remember crying with laughter over lines. I remember actually falling off my chair watching the beating the car with a branch scene. Um, it was, I, I, they, were, they were perfection. I knew they were perfection. And, and, and yeah. I, I'd already mm. uh, was the sort of person who internalised funny lines. Who, who the, you know, there were lines I, I read in in funny books that are, are still in my memory. Uh, you know, sort of fifty five years on, and 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 that shaped my my understanding of what a funny line was. And Forty Towers was part of that part of that progression. You know, they showed me what perfection was. It's a great start. For me, I, I, I've always found it a tough watch, but I always used to, because just because of the physicality of the comedy used to kind of make me squirm up into a tiny ball. Oh, the second second series has a very, uh, yes, it's very uh, difficult for my embarrassment threshold. A lot of comedy is about cringing embarrassment. It's the first series for me that works absolutely perfectly. Sorry, go on. It's the missus, but as I say, it's the, I happen to record off the telly because on, on an audio cassette player because that's what you had to do back then. The Mrs. Ri- oh. the Mrs. Richards episode, and so I I can I have memorised that episode, and that has rhythms and lines, and also you forget how he's still a python, and so therefore there is a line where he says when she bangs her head, and then he says, "Is this a piece of your brain?" Which is one of the most bizarre lines that you could just kind of just. It's gone before you know it. Um, and also it's got the physicality, it's got the surreal element to it, and it's just got the pathos of just this 
exhausted, henpecked man who just has these dreams of running a classy hotel and it's never going to happen for him. It's, it's, it's all there. But who's also an utter nightmare himself. And, and, uh, and of course it's got withering sarcasm, always the top form of humour for any 11 or 12 year old. And you know, that's, that's partly what I, what I enjoyed. But I mean, yes, that sequence where he asked what, what you she expects to see from her hotel room. It's just magnificent. Yeah. And, and I can't deny I must have pinched the rhythms of that she's done along the years. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we all have. And in fact, you know, yeah. you know, obviously that that scene, that the branch scene, is so famous and memorable. But uh, I I remember it was just it it wasn't a particularly funny uh, line, but it was the uh, with the with the, with the doctors where he's trying to impress the female uh, Doctor Hamilton, I think. Uh, oh, is it Hamilton? I'm not sure, but um, and. Uh, they they talk about Harold Robbins and uh, you know what a, what a, and he said oh terrible 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 writer and she said oh actually I quite like Harold Robbins oh Harold Robbins <laughs> and it was that was all and I I remember that exact feeling that you explained there and literally falling off the seat <laughs> clutching my sides in in pain Harold it still it still makes me laugh that that you know it's, but, it's it, not... but also the the perfection not only of the verbal humour but of the visual humour the fact that in yeah. the branch scene yeah. the camera is held there's no cut the car stops he he, he gets out he views it he goes off screen and after a little bit he comes back with the branch and starts hitting it so you've got that marvelous anticipation of what is going to happen here. i mean that's 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 true confidence of writing you know that, that that's you know, we don't have to cut we don't we can have a few seconds pause while the audience anticipation is cranked up as to what's yeah. going to happen you don't believe what's going to happen you know it's marvelous mm -hmm. A lot of comedy is nerve, isn't it? It is really holding your nerve. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Mm. yeah. And I wonder what... So therefore, as you were going into comedy... So for myself, I, I only recently realised that I ended up as a writer because I love comedy so much and I wanted to understand how comedy works. Um, how did you go from loving comedy to working in comedy television? At what point did you feel, oh, there is such a thing as a writer of television and other things and directors and producers... I could do that. How did you get into that? What what drew right, you towards it? That was a it? long old progression. I mean, I I did always love comedy, and at school, I I basically wrote the whole of the school magazine, and then I I wrote a pantomime, uh, which my sister typed up. My sister was at the BBC as a PA at the time. She typed it up. You know, quite an unusual thing. So, and um, I've still got the script, and it's not. You know, what he's got is a shape. It's got a shape. It's got very good use of teachers. I knew which teachers would be useful and, in, and, 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 and would get the biggest laughs doing particular things. It's got, yes, it's got, a, it's snappy. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it was some, and I directed it as well and became known as Ken Russell. So you can see how, how much loved I was by my fellow people. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, so I always did love comedy and I didn't, but I went, I actually went to medical school originally. I, 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 um, so I didn't, although I always nurtured writing ambitions and I still had notebooks full of notes, I didn't, at that time, I was going to be a doctor. And, um, it's a classic route, though, for, for comedy. I think of all those people like, you know, sort of Harry it, Hill, Phil Hammond, it, uh, 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 Rob... Yeah, but, uh, yes, that's true, actually. And, um, yeah, and Graham Garden, so, yeah, yeah. although he didn't practice, I think. Um, I suppose it is, but having said that, I mean, 
it's a medical review. I mean, I was never anything to do with that because partly because I was quite political and medics certainly in Newcastle, a terribly right-wing bunch. And I had nothing to do with the, the, the med sock. And in fact, I ended up writing a whole load of terribly uh, lefty and, um, and write-on sketches for the medical review, which were all rejected, obviously, out of hand. And I ended up forming a sort of comedy group with a whole load of friends from other courses. Um, what were we called? We were called the Floating Voters, that's right, who did, who did uh, sort of sketches at um, Booper, Booper Woman, I think I played at one point. <laughs> I, I just cringe at the thought, but anyway, yes. So I, I was in a sketch group at university, but still, I wasn't. I wasn't intent on doing comedy. And then I, um, just after I qualified, I, I came part of a, a, a comedy group called Wireless Wireless Wireless, where we were sort of. It was like weekending only live. We we dressed as sort of old fashioned um, radio presenters in bow ties and suits and things, and we read scripts. So we we did. Topical scripts like weekending. It was all very fast and 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 um, and yeah, up to the minute. Supposedly we did it in pubs around Newcastle. It was early on in the kind of comedy stand-up scene. And I'm not a very good performer, but it was from scripts, which was good, which meant I didn't dry in the middle of sketches. Um, but so when I decided to give up medicine about four years after qualifying, and as a very very miserable junior doctor, I thought, well. What, <laughs> I'm not qualified for anything else and then I sort of made a list of the things I could do and the things I could do were well I did a bit of writing sketches and I could you know I could I suppose direct sketches and 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 I started applying for media jobs you know the old Guardian Tuesday I think media jobs and I got an I got various interviews and I got an interview as for BBC Radio Light Entertainment and actually, although it was a perhaps seemingly a bit left field coming in from medicine, in fact, my background of comedy um, was okay. I mean, it wasn't really any different to anybody else's at that point. You know, I didn't have any broadcast background as such, but I did have a background in sketches and in sketch writing and sketch producing. And, and that's, how I, that's how I got on. So it was really expediency. You know, what can I do? I can do comedy. So it's really, it wasn't so much that during these um, sketch nights you were thinking, this is what I should be doing. This is my, it was more, whatever it is, being a doctor is not it. And yeah. I will take any job. That's part. I mean, I'm not a performer, so it certainly wasn't wishing to perform. Yes, it was, what, what are my strengths? Mm. Well, you know, yeah. Also, yes, it was the idea of doing something that, that I could enjoy, I guess. But the, uh, comedy is always run along underneath everything else I've done, like a kind of thread, being funny, Listening to funny things, reading funny things, that's always, always been important to me. Yeah. And it's interesting that you then, uh, that so you, you've got this uh, job working as a producer for, for the BBC Radio Comedy. Uh, and the, I, I remember, because I was there a little, little bit before you, there was this, this uh, single corridor uh, and there were something like 16 producers. Um, yeah. fif uh, 15 of them were uh, male and 15 of them also probably went to Oxford and Cambridge or, or Oxford or Cambridge. Yeah, so did, you, yeah. you must have, you were like, a, yeah. uh, uh, on on so many counts, you were such an outsider, <laughs> really, weren't you? I know, it's weird, wasn't it? There were one or two, there were about, about two or three old school types who, who hadn't gone along that route. Right. But on the whole, yes, it, all male and all Oxbridge. But I mean, they were okay. It was incredibly... Um, 
it's incredibly freeing being there because you, you got there and you were given your office, you were given your own PA, your production assistant, hello, this is Sarah, she works for you. And and you were given a certain number of old war horse programmes to produce, but you were also, what you were there to do was to generate your own programmes. You know, at the end of every month, there was a, there was a meeting uh, in which the, the senior members of the department would decide whether to allocate pilots or series to particular ideas. So if you came up with an idea, you could have a pilot within a couple of months and a series within three or four months. It was absolutely extraordinary. And I think so, they still have that. I mean, pretty pretty much the same yeah. system with maybe like half the number of uh, producers. But yeah. that, that's still how it works, isn't it? The PDG, it's called, I think. And, uh... Oh well, that's well, that's well, that's good. There was there was one other woman when I started, one called Joe Bunting, who wasn't actually she. I think she'd been seconded from from East Anglia. Mm. I'm so well, a very very good friend with her. She's my oldest yeah. friend in London, but I can't remember why she was there in the first place. But yes, you only allowed to have one woman at a time for a while. <laughs> And then they they gradually got more, but it was a brilliant, extraordinary, free, hmm. delightful place to work. I mean, it really was. And just some of the biggest names in uh, TV of the last kind of thirty five years, all they, they all started in that in that same job as you. Yeah. You know, whether it's uh, Armando Iannucci, Griff Rhys Jones, uh, Douglas Adams, Jimmy Mulville. Um, these are just uh, names off the top of my head. Uh, uh, yeah, Jeffrey Perkins, Phil Clark. Oh, uh, yeah, Phil Clark. Yeah, Jeffrey yeah. Perkins, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a build there. Um, yes, it was marvelous. I remember Armando starting. They suddenly they used to get in producer dribs and drabs, one or two at a time, and then they sort of bit the bullet and got in sort of eight at the same time. And it was a mix. There were actually, I think, three women out of the eight, and and I think only two of the eight had gone to Oxford or something. It was wildly radical at the time. And one of them was Armando, yes, who came in looking, uh, as he always did, like a middle-aged man in his you know, mm. tweeds and waistcoats and proceeded to turn comedy upside down. It was absolutely amazing. Mm. So lots of our listeners are uh, interested in writing situation comedy yeah. and they'd be really interested to know, uh, I guess, from day one, I guess you were reading scripts from people that you didn't know and 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 throughout your time as a TV producer and director as well, presumably you were kind of reading scripts. What were you? Uh, what what would strike? What would stick out to you? What would you be looking for? And what was a <laughs> um, rather than just like you know, back in the nineties, every, every third sitcom was set in a video store, um, and that's kind of an immediate bin. Even though there wasn't ever a sitcom set in a video store, I don't oh, think yeah. was there. Omidan, Omidan yeah, yeah. Sanjeev, that one. I small think. potatoes, yeah, yeah. I think, ended up being. That's right, Omidan Sanjeev. That's right. Uh, but things that make you laugh. Yeah, what were you looking for? <laughs> funny lines. Only ever funny lines. I would read a script and I would have a pen in the hand. I would tick every time I laughed. That was the key. I think, you know, in the end, structure structure can be imposed. What can't be imposed is the ability to to write funny lines. Funny lines is, you know, if you get both, that's that's gold dust. But but. But funny lines is all you want, and it's really difficult. And one thing that I did, my own personal rule of radio, after much thought, is that it's almost impossible to do a good sitcom on radio. It's almost impossible. Because the thing is about a sitcom, for a sitcom to really work, um, 
it has to be watched as a whole. You have to watch the whole of it because it's often, you know, there's running gags, there's setups and so forth. Nobody, hardly anybody listens to a whole half hour of radio. Not really. You're often doing other stuff or not concentrating entirely. So difficult, complicated setups, running gags, they often fall flat on radio because that's not how people listen. And it's very difficult. It's easy to come up with 20 marvellous radio programmes that I, I've loved in the past, but of them, very, very few will be sitcoms. Because for radio sitcoms work, any five minutes you tune into has to be funny. And that's really hard. It has to be funny out of context. Because, you know, if you switch it on and hear the middle 15 mm. minutes of a sitcom, mm. which is how most of us listen to radio, let's face it, that 15 minutes has to be funny, and that's really, really hard if you've missed the part of the setup or you know you were unloading the washing machine during the during during the introduction of the yeah. new character. And um I think sitcom is not particularly happily a radio medium. Well, wow, that's boom. interesting. Um, <laughs> that's a drop, James. Yeah. Yeah. Drop drop the mic. I think yeah, yeah. sketch shows, sketch shows and quiz shows and panel shows, they're and, and and bizarre uncategorizable things like like um mm. on the hour or the harpoon or you know loads of stuff like that yeah. that's radio stuff you know pings in I mean, your ear and 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 hits off. But, but a sitcom i'd say no i think um you're probably right in that um radio 4 definitely changed their policy not that long ago which was 6:30 we're not doing sitcoms we're doing stuff because literally everyone's washing up or they're driving home and therefore it needs to be, you know, so the, the show I'm involved with at the moment, which I think plays at 6.30 is the Milton Jones's show. And oh, in a way you, you can, you, you can sort of, after 15 minutes, you've had your jokes, you've arrived at your destination, you've got to get out of the car and that's fine. Or you've just picked up the end and there's a couple of payoffs that you don't get. But other than that, but in general, they just they do want panel games and, and, and short form stuff that you can dip in and out of. But I think what's exciting at the moment, though, now is that we're in a world of podcasting and audible. And I think there's almost a real opportunity here for also non-BBC sources to actually pioneer this. And some things when they do do well. They they really do well. So obviously, uh, cabin pressure is a is a really rock solid show. You no, know, I was going. I was, as I was talking, I was thinking, "Geez, cabin pressure." But of course, we are now in an age where people can choose when they listen yeah. to things. So I can say, "I'm going to lie in my bed for half an hour with me earphones on and listen to cabin pressure." That was not the case yeah. when I was in radio. Um, uh, so yes, um, cabin pressure works absolutely brilliantly. But on the other hand, cabin pressure is loads of gags mm. stuffed in together with a loose situation around mm. them yes they're running gags but basically it is gag after gag and that that is ideal yeah. for radio. and i suppose also radio i mean it, yeah. it, it began very much uh, and the, the shows that are most successful on radio and continue to be the most successful are the kind of parlor game you know just a minute uh sorry i haven't a clue and that was always the, the kind of the, the, the version uh, of radio comedy, I suppose, with, you know, the kind of crazy gang and it's that man again. And, and actually the, the sitcom, the narrative sitcom was kind of the exception really back back then. But yes. but um, yes. I'm interested because uh, I know we're interviewing you here, Lisa, but James, as, as you know, you're, you were doing those sitcoms, you were making those sitcoms uh, in the sort of late 90s and early noughts, yeah. weren't you, really? That's when your, your kind of uh, sort of 
period, golden period of uh, Think the Unthinkable and uh, Hut 33. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, I mean, and I think about this, that I've, I, when I listen to Radio 4 sitcoms now, I, I kind of take your point. And I think that, uh, that it, it's it's the voices obviously it's radio yeah. uh the jokes and there's lots and lots of jokes and yeah i'm not always following i think of shows that i really like have liked in the last few years like claire in the community and, and ed reared and so and you're right i haven't really kind of kept a kept a hold on the what's what's actually happening in this story so so maybe mm. you're you know maybe that's a well i tell you what an awful lot of people, I'd imagine, listening to this uh, are screaming at their MP3 device, listening to it un uninterrupted. They're, they're <laughs> thinking to themselves, for goodness sake, talk about Father Ted. <laughs> um, so we should probably talk about how you ended up um, working on one of the great sitcoms uh, of our age. Um, and, you know, so what, what got you there? And then what did you learn about, you know, and how do you put that into your writing? Um, I was in radio for about five years and then in about 93 or something, I, I, um, I, I co-come up with a series called, uh, with Room 101, 101 for radio. So uh, we did two or three series for radio and then I went with it to telly. So I was at the production company Hattrick that made Room 101 and Hattrick made all sorts of comedy programmes and they used to have a script, script meeting where we chat about scripts or which I was in on, and Jeffrey Perkins uh, had a script called Father Ted, or had two scripts called Father Ted that he was showing round, and I read them, and they were the, they were the funniest things I've ever read, and I've never forgotten the joy of that. I, you know, I never one one of the first two scripts that that wasn't in the end made for the first series, so I I ended up making it was um, I think it's Are You Right There, Father Ted, the one about the raffle. And the description of the car being, you know, the tiny little taps that do, uh, Ted does the car and ruins it. And the actual, one of the key things about the scripts, there are so many, but the, is that the stage directions are written absolutely perfectly. They are written as if they are as important as the speech and they demonstrate exactly how something is going to be shot. And the actual stage direction for the, the the careful tapping of the car and then the cutaway and then you come back and Google saying oh I don't think I'll ever get it quite right practically gave me a hernia reason that <laughs> so absolutely brilliant and I adored this series absolutely adored it and Jeffrey would had got the series and got the and it was going to go ahead and I hovered over it. I was nothing to do with this series I was working on one and one time but I hovered over it as if it was you know my surrogate child. <laughs> I the rushes coming back from um, from Ireland and thinking, oh, thank God they've cast the right people. Thank God, you know, you know those people are perfect. And I knew it was going to be a hit because how could it not be? It was absolutely... Well, boring. you say that, but there was no... At the time, this was not in any way inevitable because no. we, when we spoke to Graham, eventually, whenever we speak to uber yeah. successful writers... We always want to talk about the show that was that bombed. Um, so when we got when we spoke to Stephen Moffat, we danced around for an hour and a half before we asked him about chalk, um, <laughs> which you know uh, we, we we learned that right. And obviously with Graham, he'd written this show called Paris with Arthur. Paris, well, yeah, yeah. Which which did not did not do well. It was a noble failure, and he explained to us why why that show didn't work, and it was actually because they didn't listen to advice. 
And in the end... Oh, right. Because I always felt the, the part of the reason was they didn't really know whether you were supposed to cheer on the hero or... Right. Or hate him. I don't mm. know. Anyway, yes, go on. I mean, well, I his analysis, his, yeah. his analysis was that um, they basically wrote scripts that were too long, yeah. and they refused to cut them down. Oh. And in the end, when it comes to the edit, the yeah. easiest thing to cut yes. is jokes. How interesting! Because when we got to the skipping forward, um, we would cut and cut and cut the actual uh, script because we didn't want to over-record for that precise reason. Yeah. And Graham and Arthur were fantastic about that. And the idea was to over-record in studio about five or six minutes, because that would come down in Titans. And it mm. meant we didn't have to cut scenes or half scenes or anything like that. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Well, I think he'd learned by very bitter experience. Ah. Mm. Well, mm. anyway, it, I know. I, th I think rumour had got round it wasn't very good, because I remember... I remember later on because what happened I'm getting ahead of myself but what happened it, it, before it came out I thought it was absolutely brilliant and I remember going to a hat-trick party and Dermot Morgan was there and I remember saying to him thank God I did actually because I think it smoothed away a bit I think what you're in is brilliant I think you're brilliant and then the series came out and of course it was a smash hit and I'm still working hat-trick on series whatever room 101 and then one day Jeffrey phoned me and said I've got you know a question for you Lisa I'm I, got a job at the BBC, would you like to produce second series of Hot Ted? I know what a fan you are. So basically it was just handed me on a plate. So it was um it was wonderful. And it was terrifying of course because I was taking over somebody not only brilliant, but adored, you know, and 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 trusted and you know that was that was a big thing. And I was the, the biggest burden for me and Father Ted was that in the average series that you produce, you're trying to make it better than the script. You're trying to polish it. You're trying to improve it. You're trying to think, this is a good joke, but how could we make it better? In Ted, the, all the pressure was, can we make this as good as the script? Wow. And, I, and the car thing, you know, that I always remember that. I always remember hearing the laugh when we cut to the scene, of, you know, when we cut back and the, the car's an absolute wreck. And thinking, oh, yeah, that's a good laugh. It's not quite as good as it should have been we must have done something very slightly wrong because that last should be that that should have been <laughs> up to the ceiling it wasn't it was only halfway to the ceiling and and that kind of thing so but it what it was i mean i was so proud to do it and so pleased but they they were difficult scripts to do they were like military operations there's so much going on in them and by the time it got the third series you know i was i my heart was in my mouth when every script arrived because i knew I knew how difficult it would be to shoot. And and I was remember realising by the time we got these sort of seventh script arrived that we would not have enough time on location to shoot, shoot any more location. Hmm. Now, I remember asking Graham and Arthur, is there any possibility the, the final script of the third series could be a studio one, like like Flight Into Terror, the one on the aeroplane? So we, you know, we because we only had three weeks location shooting in Ireland and then not much time between that and the studio. And they said, oh, okay, we'll think about it. And then the eighth script arrived and it was speed three. <laughs> <laughs> so at which point, doof, I had to, you know, we had to phone up Channel 4 and say, you know, you can us three weeks on location. Can we have four weeks on location? Oh, my God. We had to cram an extra week and do all the editing while we were there in the hotel room in the evening. And, I mean, you know, they, it was fantastically hard work. I can't yeah. deny it. And I was a perfectionist and probably in the right pain in the arse shooting it but i love that series so much and i love well i love the cast so much it 
it's exciting for writers to hear that, that that a producer like that and a director like that is possible just because in a way it's people often self-edit and just think oh they could never film this they could never do this mm. and whereas actually it sounds like you would just really rather just put it all in and let me figure it out and i will yeah yeah, yeah. yeah but i mean one of the <laughs> one of the other things in that episode with the car is it's just casual it's, it's about two lines take take Dougal and jack leave the house and go to the car on their way to the car they are attacked by a flock of crows <laughs> <laughs> They drive off literally. That's it. And of course, you can think, "Oh my God, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it?" So it was, it was lots of it. And this was early days of CGI as well. So yeah, it was some. Um, I mean, I'm Mexican graduate, and after I'd done that, I really didn't. I sort of had enough of telly, really, because I thought I'll never be able to produce anything as good as that ever again. If it's pointless me carrying on, really, I don't want to do something that's not as good as that. And it's after I started directing after that, and then I sort of left all together, became writer. Wow, that's that's uh, <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, it must must have been, uh, uh, yeah, obviously uh, from from the way you're talking about it. I mean, that that excitement, and obviously it's still, you know, uh, uh, everyone I I meet, you know, everyone who they talk about sort of their favourite shows. You know, what are your favourite sitcoms? And you know, Father Ted is just always in everybody's top five favourite sitcoms. And, <laughs> Amazing. I mean, it's 25 years ago now, really, but I, I, it's seared onto my consciousness. That and being a junior doctor are two <laughs> things that have never left me. I can remember, I can give you a second by second commentary on me doing both those things. I mean, what a thrill, because we, we are, we, the way we talked about Faulty Towers is the way that people also talk about father ted mm. and it, it's basically canon isn't it it's canon scripture for mm. for people writing comedy now it's like you know what are your favorite shows faulty towers yes father ted obviously father ted you know if if, if you're it's just like it's not it goes without saying you know mm. that it's it, so it must be a thrill to, and i can see how it's all downhill after that in terms <laughs> of producing tv what i will say about we were talking earlier about cutting and 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 about advice for writers and graham did say one thing that has never left me and, and actually sort of stays with me in my my own self-editing it, it's when we when we had to cut things sometimes we'd get a script and and you know it was about sort of 15 minutes over or something i said okay we've got to, we've got to cut and you know some scripts were easier than others and sometimes i'd be staring and saying what can we cut and you know i really don't want to lose this scene but i think we'll have to and graham would say the joke pool is bottomless that's what he'd say so <laughs> heave it out if, 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 you know, won't fit heave it out there's always more jokes and i love that because it's always so easy to try and guard your own jokes and keep them and mm. reinsert them somewhere but no there are always more jokes i think yeah. i'm quite interested thinking about this and and there's the, the two shows we've talked about here the most and uh just in relation to you know james and i we do spend a lot of time talking about writing and the process of writing and character and story and premise and etc cetera, etc cetera. But what we've, we've we've spent most of the time so far today talking about sort of moments, isn't it? It's like kind of, and that that's you know that's why you know, Del Boy falling through the bar, you know, the chandelier falling down. This is what everybody, you know, they, these are they they're great shows, they're fantastic shows. They've got everything else, but then over and above that, they just have those sort of. It, it's, yeah. it's almost magic, isn't it? Really, hmm. it is almost. But it's it's funny when my my husband and one of my daughters are obsessed with 
um, one foot in the grave and I've watched it from the start several times and there I mean I, I still think it's an absolutely brilliant sitcom but that's that's one which again which has got extraordinary moments that will will live forever yeah but but perhaps those moments wouldn't be worth anything well I'm sure it, it wouldn't be worth anything if you didn't have the solid framework underneath the characters mm. who, who can create those moments you know the moments arise out of character that's 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 a tr as much true with a, a novel as it is with a yeah. sitcom. You know? I think One Foot in the Grave is a really good example of holding your nerve as well, like the running off and running back with the with the branch. When you think about it, you look back on One Foot in the Grave, I'm a massive fan. I think it's one of the great overlooked sitcoms in many ways. When you think back to it, it's not that funny, and I bet it wouldn't read that funny on the page, but the sum total of it and David Renwick's kind of stage management just means you just wait, you just wait. You just wait. Okay, you've opened the downstairs loo and there's a plant planted in the toilet. It's like, what? Well, there's, there's the fantastic episode. Now, you know, talking about individual episodes is probably a disaster on this series because there'll be a lot of people going, oh, I've never seen any of it. But yeah. the one where they're stuck in a traffic jam for the, for the whole episode yeah, yeah. and often it's just, it's just um, Victor and his wife there talking. And then after you've been in this traffic jam about, 15 minutes suddenly the back door of the car opens and mrs warboy who's their next door neighbor walks in and then she what what the actual, what the actual she, she's she's found a loo somewhere near it but she's never been mentioned and suddenly in this tiny cozy environment you've got a third character come so clever it's wonderful well so how do we how do we how do you apply that to your writing because you because graham i think when he talks about his writing he does think about the moments and he kind of figures out how to get to them and get away from them and get to the next one but you're right you know you you've you've written from the beginning you know medical review stuff topical stuff um how do you approach things i guess novels are different uh, and uh yeah, you know, not, obviously i've never been much of a, a, a sketch writer really i've done odd sketches but I think I, I worked with too many good TV and radio writers to want to do that myself. And because my love of um, reading predates everything and reading you know, funny books and novels in particular, that was always what underlay everything. And, and, and when I decided to write, it was what I decided to write was the novel I've been trying to write for 10 years at that stage. And, and for me, I, it all comes from the characters, really. It, it, every, everything comes from that. And although I've often got a sort of rough arc of how a, a novel will go, quite often, once you've established the characters, what you thought you were going to write can't happen because it won't work for that set. And you have to take your characters in the direction in which they will go. And that's the same for sitcom. You know, you can't, you can't force jokes on them. And the funniest jokes are the ones that arise out of character. You couldn't have... Mrs. Doyle and Jack wouldn't knock the car. No, that would be super confident Ted and 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 Douglas's advisor. You know, it's it's it. You know that that's where it all starts. And what I what is perhaps entirely different about my writing from TV and radio writing is that I am in the characters' heads most of the time, and I do a lot of internal monologues. So. A lot of my jokes arise from what is going on in the characters' heads, which, of course, is, is absolutely what you cannot do in radio and TV. I mean, that's what I'm filmed. That's what makes it so different. And that's what makes adaptations seem so different to the source material, because, because you don't know until they tell you mm. on, on TV, radio, you know, 
Whereas, whereas I can I can sit in the character's headset and and and, and tell the story from there. I, I was going to say uh, uh, you, you mentioned adaptations there, and uh, in fact, I know you you uh, had uh, a, a book um, that um, was was adapted and yeah. became a, a movie. And I, I, I'm interested to know the uh, how that that sort of you know your something that that came from you, something that's such that so yes. much of your so much of your life, and presumably you know kind of I don't know year two years of sweat and <laughs> blood, and then. <laughs> Somebody says, "Oh, oh, we're going to make a movie of it. Oh, fantastic!" Uh, and here's the writer. Uh, hang on, um, hang on. I wrote the book. I, I'm curious to to, to know how uh, what happened so, with that. They're finally well, and a half. I, mean, I got I got very lucky. Yeah, they're finally Star and a half, which is a book about making a film during the Second World War. Because I wanted to write. I thought about writing a book about behind the scenes in telly, but in fact, I ended up writing a book about behind the scenes in film set in era with which I'd always been fascinated so it was a good good combo for me but um but it said everything I'd ever wanted to say about writing working with actors and, and indeed working with writers so you know the writer's room is at the heart of that book but anyway you know I wasn't asked if I'd adapt it and I've still never been asked if I'll adapt it which does drive me mad a bit you know but uh this was fairly early on in my writing career and yes a, a writer was was appointed that not of my choice, but in fact, she's fantastic. She's called Gabby Shappy, and we've become very good friends. In fact, I, I dedicated one of my subsequent books to her. But I got lucky in many ways. I There were two different producers, Stephen Woolley and Amanda Posey, working together. And they were lovely to me, and they sent me every draft of the script. And I remember getting the first draft. I mean, I didn't have any official input. They were being polite in many ways, but I still had to think what I would do with these scripts. And I, I remember getting the first one and thinking, okay, I know they're going to drop characters because they're finally start. I don't know, it's a big book with loads of characters, and uh, you know, not to my surprise, they'd already dropped a couple of major ones. But it was very different to the book already, although it had a similar arc. Um, and I found it quite difficult to read, and I think my comments probably weren't all that helpful. And then there was another draft, and I could see what they were trying to do. And it was at this stage I sort of pulled myself together and thought, and and told myself off really, and told myself to be grown up. Here I was, you know, I was fantastically lucky, and I got really good writers to do it. And it's pointless me wailing, but it's not like the book, you know. I have to, and I decided from then on I was going to read the scripts as if I was simply a punter watching it in the in in the cinema. And, and my comments will be confined to things like, I don't quite understand how this happens. I don't quite see the link to this. I don't, as, as a viewer, I don't see how that would happen. So I was just an eye, basically, rather than an author. Because I realised that the, the huge, huge difference between books and films is, is in this matter of internal monologue. And that a book is like, if you like, it's like a rambling road or a river you know, it wombles along from idea to idea, from thought to thought. But a film is completely different, different because it's all on the surface. And it's like a series of hairpin bends. It has to be. So so you go up here, oh, and somebody has a change of view or, you know, somebody dies. And, and then you go along, oh, and somebody has, you know, there's a turning point where somebody realises they can't do something. And, and it's completely different. It's completely different. So basically, I pulled myself together. And what was instructive was seeing how different the different drafts were, that in a, um, a position where you've got 
good producers and a good writer, they will explore the different ways that a film can be before they get to its final shape. And they stuck with the same writer and it went through various different shapes and it ended up as a, a good film. I mean, I, I think it's a really good film. It's soppier than my book, um, but it's, it's beautifully done. It has exactly the same art. It has exactly the same very difficult to shoot moment near the end, which a lot of people I think were upset by in the book. I'm not gonna say anything more. Um, and, you know, I got really lucky. I've got people who really cared about it and a writer who really cared about it. So I was lucky. I can't say much more about other things of mine that are being adapted, but they have been less happy, shall we say. You know, right. I had people who were absolutely in sympathy with the book. And if what they produced was not quite the way I'd seen it, well, nevertheless, they produced something of value and that I thought was good. So, I guess what you're looking for is the kind of way in which you took on the um the father ted project because it was something that you just what you loved it and you wanted to be part of it and so i guess it's you're always looking for those happy relationships of people who just want it to be the best version that it can be that's good um as opposed to someone who's well they've bought this they've given it to this person to do that person's been found they're going to write it and there's no real reason why that should necessarily be a happy process and it sounds like it's quite common that there are different views, even though with your in the cold light of day, you know, they are utterly different processes, aren't they? Of, you know, the lack of internal monologue. And to be honest, although, you know, I, I sometimes feel that probably I wouldn't be suited to to write a film script anyway, because I don't I don't enjoy notes. And I especially don't enjoy notes from 15 different people, which is what <laughs> you are, the position you are in in film. You know, because I give myself notes throughout writing. And although I do have to do some rewrites at the end of my books, I don't have to do very much because I've already rewritten and edited absolutely every sentence of it over and over again by the time I get to the end of the book. Can't do that mm. with film. I guess it's always easy to think, though, that the grass is greener. Um, so, you know, there you were making television. We've talked about movies, but you're writing novels. And to the frustrated writer who's getting notes and notes, you just think, ah, I should write a novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Do you want to tell us about the, non the non-green bits of grass uh, that are clearly available on that side of the fence? <laughs> well, just that it takes me absolutely forever. And I'm just in the process now of starting another novel. And I'm back in the sleepless nights again because... You know, when I get into bed and there's nothing else to distract me, that's what I think about. I, I you know, I absolutely chew over it endlessly how how it should be, how I should write it, what's wrong with it, what's right with it. Um, it you know, it sits in you. You never it never leaves you. Um, mm. I mean, you know, it's a fantastically privileged life. I'm not I'm not saying it's not. I mean, lucky lucky me to be to be a writer, but. You know what I what I pay is in ceaseless worry, absolutely ceaseless angst about what I'm writing. Yeah, because mm. I I'm, I'm total perfectionist, and every the way I write is every sentence has to be right before I move on. Because otherwise, yeah. because if I'm not building my springboard properly, I can't I can't jump. That's what I feel. I'm not one of these people who writes hundred twenty thousand words and then pairs it back because every sentence is built on the sentence before. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, how, a bit about your routine. How do you do? You tend to write particular times of day. Uh, you're not so fast. I'm better in the mornings. I've got a concept. Well, when I wrote my first book, 
uh, I told a mate of mine, she's another comedy producer, Sarah Smith. I told oh. Sarah I've written a book. And she said, you can't have written a book, Lisa. You've got the concentration span of a flea. <laughs> and that seems fair enough. You know, I don't... I, I was reading uh, some Oliver Sacks the other day, who's I'm a big fan of. And Oliver Sacks used to go into writing jags where he would start writing and then he would look up and it was dark and he'd been writing all day. If I look up and three minutes have gone by, that's a really sensational piece of concentration on my part. So I'm better off, I'm better in the morning, but basically I avoid work all day <laughs> and into the evening and then eventually come up with I've been uh, writing. I'm just about to get my first novel out and been and sort of yeah, yeah, second okay. idea. Yeah. And uh, basically, uh, Lissa has been uh, over my shoulder the entire time that I've been writing. <laughs> when I first started year, a few years ago, think about writing novels. I said, you know, what, what advice can you give me? And, uh, and it's interesting because you've said exactly the same thing about uh, the, the uh, sitcom scripts. Um, which are much much shorter, but the, the advice is the same: cut, cut, cut. Because I always, I always thought, oh, a novel. Well, you know, you just you just keep writing, and you you just write and write and write, and you never stop. And and you saying, no, no, you got, got to keep cutting, keep cutting all the time, you know. So, but also, yeah, but also my piece of advice to writers in any medium is to never send it out until it's as good as you think you can get it, because nobody will ever give you any credit for something that isn't on the page. Nobody's ever going to say, oh, I can see the bones of something good here, you know, because you've got to you've got to get it as good as you can. And then, you know, maybe you'll get somebody who will help you to, to make it better, but you can't put in something half-assed. Do you have to trick? I mean, I find that I, I know that intellectually, but I have to kind of work out ways of tricking myself, even though I know... Even if something, so last year um, I wrote an episode of a murder mystery called Shakespeare and Hathaway, which is like a daytime uh, murder mystery thing. Um, but I sent off draft one, knowing that's not the final draft, but I had to convince myself that this script is perfect. There is nothing wrong with it. You know, and I had to get it so that by the time the notes come, you're offended by the notes. And then after, and then, and then you sort of, by the time you're on draft four, you just think, I am so ashamed of that first draft I sent. I do not know what I was thinking. It's but you kind of have to kind of trick yourself a bit, don't you? You do, but also distance is very useful for rewrites. Uh, if you, something, because when you've just written something, you're, you're so attached to every line of it. But look at it a couple of months later and it all becomes much easier to see what works and what doesn't and what, what you can lose and what can. But I'd always advocate a bit of distance. Yes, you have to you have to be convinced at the time, but that doesn't mean it's it's the optimum. You know? mm. I mean, I think it's a question of figuring out what sort of writer you are. It feels like you've, you've you, you know, the, the, the novels and the internal monologue and the slightly character-led storytelling which is not structured whereas others would just say if you don't know if you don't have a structure for your novel then forget it but actually it doesn't but there's a first but you you need to kind of write the sorts of books where 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 that that's going to work um i've got i've been trying to write a, a sort of like a mystery novel um and i just sort of the problem with mysteries is that you've got to write it twice you've got to write out what exactly happened that we don't see? And then what are we seeing and how are we jumping from one to the other? And it's an absolute nightmare. Yes. I've actually abandoned writing it as a novel yeah. and I'm writing it as a screenplay. Oh, right. And I think in dialogue. I don't think in internal monologue. 
ironically. <laughs> Probably why I talk so much. What I use the dialogue for in books, you see, I hate exposition because I want all my dialogue in books to sound exactly the way people talk. You know, I don't want, you know, to trip up the reader by thinking nobody would ever say this. So I use my dialogue for character, if you like, and I and the exposition can take place in in the narrative or the internal monologue. And that makes life a lot easier if if we don't if my characters don't have to tell each other what's going on the whole time. Now you don't have to have that luxury in, in scripts, of course. You know, you have to convey plot, you play to a certain amount visually, but you have to convey it in dialogue, and that makes it doubly difficult. I can use dialogue for other means, but it, yeah, it's it's. There's not one method of doing anything. That's the only thing. Mm. I could never be a creative writing tutor because because I couldn't ever say to anybody this is the way to do it because I, there isn't one way. I, I'm quite interested, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but um, we we talk a lot. Um, you know, the, the, the phrase that everyone always says is you know show don't tell, and um, it's something that I say a lot to writers when I'm sort of reading scripts and things. And uh, I, when I got my um, notes back for the for the novel when I was at the sort of fairly advanced stage from a sort of uh, development editor um he said I don't know if you've heard the phrase show don't tell <laughs> and I was just sort of, oh god I literally got off off of zoom call the day earlier talking about show don't tell to another writer for about half an hour and uh, and it's interesting because he's a guy who's who who works with uh, with with sort of comic novelists and uh, and your your novels as well have a lot of humour in that and he and he said something which I thought was interesting which is you know you don't uh, you in comedy you can tell you know it's okay it's okay to tell but. Uh, you know, you also you, you kind of have to find that balance and in, in a novel when you've got this internal monologue versus dialogue. And uh, I, I just wondered, is that something that, uh, you know, that, 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 that whole kind of show don't tell uh, discussion that one has with oneself? Do you have that a lot in that? Uh... I do have that a lot. And I think um, I wouldn't ever use it as an absolute rule. But you can often find there are there, like there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to convey a plot. You, you don't have to do it. You don't have to tell, have characters telling each other the plot. You don't have to explain it in the narrative. You can convey it through subtle hints, through, through descriptions of scenes, through leaps in time, through a door opening or shutting. There are, there are loads of ways to convey things you have to find what works best there isn't one way so i think show not tell is a little bit too too um black and white as as a piece of advice what i'd say you know anything that feels clunky is wrong you know you want whatever it is whatever method you can use to make it flow that is the method that works yeah. And if you know it's clunky, it really is. It really is. Yeah. Because yeah. you're writing plenty of clunkers that you don't know about yet. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. yeah. Before we wrap up, because we, we need to let you go, um, you've also written for children and some, you know, on, on, the, on the surface, that might look easy or easier. Uh, oh. I'm sure it isn't. And it's only, I mean, I've read my kids the Narnia books at least twice and you just think, holy moly, these books are absolutely perfect and incredible and all that kind of stuff. But um, what, what, you know, what, why did you want to write kids' books and, and what what have you learned about writing uh, through them? Um, 
I've, I've, I started writing a kids' book when I had a big hiatus between two adult books where I was and and various well actually various things going on in my life including having adopted two school aged children which might have something to do okay. with suddenly writing children's books but um but I had a very clear idea of the kind of children's book I wanted to write because my uh, rule for anything I write is it should be something it's for me it's to entertain me that's the only that's the bottom line of everything if I'm finding something boring on the page then you know cut it and um for children's books the kind of children's books I always loved were ordinary kids stumbling across magic that's what I liked and I've got a very clear view of myself at 10 because we moved house when I was 10 so I remember being utterly miserable so I I remember what it was like being a 10 year old so I write books for that age group about ordinary kids stumbling across magic and they're funny books and um what I find is they are they vary into whether they're easy or not. What I will say is because kids spend less time brooding about stuff, and they do brood, I'm not saying they don't, but they get on with stuff as well. They, you know, you don't they don't sit and angst on the whole, they'll get on with things. And that is reflected in children's books as well. That that that, that they're very fast moving, you know, that that they talk as well as do. They don't, they don't sit in angst. And Therefore, uh, the books sprint along in a way that um, uh, the adult books don't in some ways. And sometimes that's reflected in the speed. I probably write them about at, at about twice the speed I write adult books. And seeing as they're half the length of adult books, <laughs> I write them four times as fast, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, but always it's to, it's to make people laugh. And, um, and children, in some ways, do laugh at the same things obviously you have to change the frame of reference but they like the same sort of range of gags that adults do they like pratfalls they like sarcasm they like silly you know cross dialogue they you know you you just have to set your sights on the child's eye view of the world rather than the adult's eye view Mm, yeah. definitely yeah no and it's well my kids love them so uh keep them oh, please keep them coming <laughs> Uh, that would that would be great. And what's um? Uh, uh, can can you tell us what uh, you're working? You mentioned you got a new book, but uh, oh. you're working on. But what? What's... No, I can't say. I can't tell you because I'm still banging my head against the desk trying to work it out. But it's another my my last three books. Well, have been historical to a certain extent. So two two of them are set in the Second World War and one set in the twenties. And this one's still historical, but not set during the war. That's all I can say. And yeah. what I will also say is I've got a, a character and situation, characters and situation, but I don't have a plot. And that's driving me absolutely nuts at the moment. Anyway, there uh, you go. So where can people find your, your books and where's, where's the place to oh, find them? All good bookshops, as they say, <laughs> all good bookshops, all Amazon, if you don't go to a good bookshop. Yeah. But it'd be better if you Bookshop, yeah. so you've got a web- website as well, though, haven't you? you? I've got a website as well, yeah, which has got links to all the shops. Uh, two of my adult books are only available in Kindle, but the rest are in print, and all the kids' books are in print. So, um, yeah, they're around. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you ever so much. And uh, I look forward to listening. No, I don't actually, because I never listen to myself. But I look forward <laughs> to saying that I'm going to listen to it. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Thanks Lisa. very much for listening, everybody. And we will speak to you next time. Thanks Cheerio. Bye.